Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Studio B. I am your host, Pastor MDH. Uh, We greet you in the name of Jesus and pray that your day is going well and that all is well with you and your family. Uh, Make sure that wherever you're watching us from, either Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, you like, subscribe, follow, um, and even share these podcasts uh, so that you don't miss anything that's going on on Studio B. Last week, I gave you some wonderful information that we have now been added to several uh, podcast platforms uh, such as Apple, Spotify, uh, Pandora, and even Google. So no matter where you access your podcast, you can follow Studio B on any one of those platforms. Uh, So where are now? We're in the house right now. And I want to talk to you about something that will hopefully cause us to go into some deep thought and deep reflection. Uh, I want to ask you um, as a Christian or somebody that has pondered Christianity about why do you trust the Bible? Um, In John 18 and 38, one of the most profound questions that has ever been asked in human history was posed by Pilate, the Roman governor. And it is when Jesus was standing before him, getting ready to stand trial for what the Jews called to be blasphemy. And so the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate so that Pilate would bring forth a sentence of execution on this man that they deemed to be a heretic. And as Jesus was standing before Pilate um, after um, the flogging, Pilate asked Jesus a question. He says, Jesus, what is truth? And there has never been a more profound question in all of history than that. What is truth? And John 14 and 6, the Bible says through the mouth of Jesus that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus said that I'm not one of the ways, I am the way. I am not a version of truth, I am the truth. I'm not a way to life, I am the life. So Jesus here epitomizes through the mouth of himself when he says to himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is truth that will revolutionize your life if you internalize it. But there are many people that look at the Bible as being this archaic book. Um, They consider Christians to be uh, weak-minded people who use the Bible as a crutch uh, because they're so emotionally insecure that they can't get through life without making up some imaginary God that they can lean on in tough and trying times in their lives. And so many Christians have been persecuted, have been ridiculed, have been made fun of because of their beliefs, because they don't know how to properly articulate what they believe and why they believe it. And so they operate from this 30,000 foot view that I just believe it on faith. It's real to me. It don't have to be real to you. And that answer is usually given when we're backed into a corner and don't have a response for a logical question that an unbelieving world may ask. But a changed life in which would many Christians would point to as a reference point to the Bible being true. But a changed life is not necessarily evidence of the Bible being true. There are people that change their life and many for the better uh, outside of biblical truth. Uh, There are alcoholics who are no longer alcoholics. There are drug addicts that are no longer drug addicts. There are people that have stopped doing very bad things and going on to do very good things. And they've done all of these things outside of biblical truth. 
And so if a person is looking for a changed life and is that all they're looking for, you can get a changed life in many different respects. You don't necessarily have to go to God um, in order to get a changed life. The human will is a very powerful vehicle that has the ability to change a lot of stuff. But when we're talking about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the 66 books of canon, what does it mean when I say that I trust in the Bible? Now, as I uh, talked to you about last week when Glenn Barrow mentioned to me and led me to faith in Christ some 22 years ago, and I praise God for that, um, he, he laid a question or a statement on me that really drove me into a very deep and intrinsic study of not only the Bible, but Jesus in particular. And I have studied Jesus. Uh, I have um, done things that I needed to do personally within myself to validate what I was doing so that I had not only a personal conviction of my heart, but I had an intellectual conviction of my mind. And I believe that's one thing that Christians don't um, nearly rely enough on. We we have the knee jerk reactions uh, of of God changed my life and and all of that. And that is wonderful. We'll get to that in a second. That's called your personal testimony of uh, those things are wonderful. But everybody, you got to be able to give a hope for the answer that lies within you. So when the unbelieving world comes up and challenges you, and that's what many of them will do, you have to be able to give an answer for why you believe what you believe. And so if someone were to ask me why I believe the Bible, of course I believe the Bible because God changed my life and there's evidence because of that. I will lean to my personal testimony of who I was pre-Christ and who I am post-Christ. But I would say that I believe the Bible uh, because it is a collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report to us supernatural events that took place in accordance with specific prophecies that prove that the Bible is divine rather than human in origin. And so within that statement that I've been saying for years, I have a personal conviction, but I also have provable facts about why I believe the Bible. Why I believe the Bible is not just intrinsic to my personal belief that God changed my life, but I have evidence to prove the Bible. And there is evidence to prove the Bible. There are over 40 different writers of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Those 40 different writers on different continents and on different times and different points in history wrote the Bible over a period of 1,500 years. And these writers who many of them, 95% of them did not know each other, all of a sudden put together a unison book that operates according to the will of God. And there are things in which we can do to validate what the Bible says. And so the Bible is not some archaic book that somebody kind of, uh, you know, invented in the channel of their mind uh, one day. I was looking at some research here and I found that the Guinea's World Book of Records said that the Bible has been printed more than five billion times. The closest book to it is the Quran that has been printed 800 million times. The one right up under that would be the Book of Mormon, um, printed almost 120 million times. So the Bible has been printed in copy over 5 billion times. It is the number one best-selling book of all times. Any list will tell you that. Uh, the Bible continues to sell. There are many people that have multiple copies of the book. And while those things are great, those numbers are great, those things are wonderful to talk about. But the question that I would have for many people, uh, Christian and Christian non alike, would be, why do you believe it? Why have you staked your entire existence here on earth, and even in the afterlife of a book. 
of what many would call an archaic book. The New Testament has been preserved more than any other manuscript in ancient work in literature. With over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts cataloged and over 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Coptic, and Armenian. Now, we don't possess the original versions of, you know, the book of Genesis or the book of Matthew. We we do not have those. We have copied, verified copies of all of those particular manuscripts. And as you look at those particular manuscripts and compare them one to another, you will find a ninety nine point five percent accuracy rate of copies from the most recent all the way to the most ancient. The Bible is a book that has been preserved beautifully over centuries of its existence. And so when I ask people about why you believe the Bible, yes, we must again point to what we believe in our heart, as that is um, the go-to for many Christians. But I want to give people this um, um, another avenue by which to propagate the word of God. And that is by having an intellectual conviction. A personal conviction of the heart is great. That is our testimony. That is God pulling us out of the muck and mire, changing our life, uh, putting us on the foundation. And he has done great things, blessed us tremendously. That is the personal conviction that we all have as Christians and those who believe in the Bible. But I also want you to be able to reason from an intellectual conviction that not only do you believe it in your heart because of what God has done in your life, but that you've done the research so that you intellectually understand what you believe. Now, hear what I'm saying here, everybody. God is infinite. Uh, We are finite. That means that God is unlimited while we are limited. Um, God is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. There is nothing to be known that God does not know. There are many things that I don't know and many things that you don't know. So we can never be on the level of God. God is omnipresent, meaning that he can be everywhere at the same time. Psalm 139 says that if I make my bed in the belly of hell, you will be there. So we're not um, omnipresent. I can't be everywhere at all times. And so while I recognize that there are limitations to my understanding, it does not stop me from seeking understanding. And seeking understanding in a way that I can process it and then make this Christianity something that is palatable for me so that it can move my life in the way in which God has directed. And so I believe that we got to have a personal conviction of our faith. We have to have a personal conviction, meaning that we can point to what we believe God has done in our lives. And all Christians can do that. And we can do that quite well. But we also need an intellectual conviction. I often share this. It is absolutely okay to be a Christian and be smart. It is absolutely okay to be a Christian and be smart. It is okay to be a Christian and have a college degree. It is okay to be a Christian and operate in any particular field of study that you may be endeavored in. It is okay to be a Christian and have the capacity of a working mind. So when you get saved, God does not say, check your brain at the door. That's not what he says to Christians. And so we're not living in some esoteric world where we are walking around kind of feely, touchy uh, people operating off off of our emotions and, and hallelujah shouts and things of that nature. We have verifiable evidence that the Bible is true in its claims. And this is very important for us to understand. One of the things that I use in regards to the Bible is that God used a Greek writer by the name of Dr. Luke. 
And Dr. Luke was not a Ph.D. in his day. He was a medical doctor. Uh, So God and science operate in tandem to one another. And what many people fail to realize is that the Bible is not contrary to science and science is not contrary to the Bible. The two actually fit and they fit quite perfectly. Dr. Luke was a medical doctor that went through medical studies in order to attain that particular designation as a doctor. And so when you understand that these are a very important parts when you're looking at what the Bible says and what the Bible has claimed and then being able to verifiably prove these things um, through study of the particular text. The problem that I see oftentimes with Christians is that we look at the Bible in fairy tale stories. Uh, we tell our kids when they go to bed at night about the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, We tell them about the story of David and Goliath. We tell them about these stories of Jesus walking on water. And before we know it, they become just that stories. And they take on almost a fairy tale like uh, uh, persona because that's how we tell them to our children. And that's how we tell them to other people. But there is actually a man in history that is verifiable named Noah who built an ark for the saving of the world. There's there's verifiable evidence in science and in archaeology and in archaeology that says about this great flood that happened uh, as the Bible records in Genesis chapter number six. If you read ancient Egyptian writings, they also tell you about a major flood apart from what Genesis says in Genesis chapter number six. And so the problem that I see with a lot of people is that we look at the Bible in this kind of fairy tale type of scenario, and then it takes all of these fictional aspects onto it. But the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation. And so how do we explain the Bible? If someone were to ask you why you believe, can you explain why you believe the Bible? And I don't mean explain it to your Sunday school class or to your small group or to your Christian mom. I mean, could you explain it to someone who is a total skeptic, who does not believe in God, who does not believe in Jonah, who does not believe in the stories of the Bible? Can you can you can you accurately articulate why you believe? Now, I know that's not an easy question, and many Christians have a trouble doing that. But we do this, and I believe that it's important because it's important not only for you to know these foundational things because it solidifies your faith, it solidifies your trust in God, but it also gives the unbelieving world something to hold on to. Now, we are living in a world right now where truth, uh, unfortunately, is subject to change. Uh, Unfortunately, we... Um, The thing about truth, what makes truth very difficult is that truth brings with it change. And the reason why many people reject truth is because you cannot receive truth and not change. So what I would rather do is to reject it because I know that by receiving truth with truth, I must change. And that's the thing about truth that is so very difficult. When God opens up the word of God and the Bible shows us who we really are, that's the truth of who we really are. Many people can't handle that. Many people can't handle looking at themselves in the mirror for a long period of time because they don't like the person that's looking back at them. So truth brings with it change. Truth does not bring with it just to educate you uh, intellectually and make you smarter. Truth brings about change. And that's the one thing about truth that is very, very difficult for us to swallow. 
And if you look at throughout the years, how truth is now going back and forth, and it's almost like a pendulum that's swinging left to right. And we hear things now like you live your truth. I live my truth. And now truth is now a subjective reality to most people. Now, in order for truth to be truth, it cannot be subjective. Truth has to be solid. It must stand alone apart from circumstances. If truth can change with circumstances, then truth is not truth. Truth has to be objective. It cannot be a subjective reality that we enter in and out of. And so now you hear things like people living my truth and people living your truth and all of these other things. We're in the Christmas season and I'm going to tell you, stop lying to your kids about Santa Claus. It is an absolute and total lie. Don't tell your kids that stuff. It is a fairy tale. And so here's the thing. We tell our kids lies and then get mad at them when they lie. Like your kids know that Santa Claus don't exist. Your kids know that the tooth fairy don't exist. Your kids know that the Easter bunny don't exist. Stop telling them those lies and stop relegating truth to situations. Because truth, in order for it to be really true, it has to be objective. It has to stand outside of whatever situation that you're in. And that is the word of God. The word of God is a standard of truth that is not changed based on the situation. The wonderful thing about God, the wonderful thing about God is that God is not a respecter of persons. So what is applicable for me is also applicable for you. That is the wonderful thing about the truth of God is that it is not subjective. It is not subjective to personal interpretation. It is the truth that stands outside of every situation and or circumstance. And with that kind of truth, you can place trust in. Here's what the Bible says in the book of Malachi that Jesus, that God says that I am the same yesterday, today and forever. I am the Lord and I do not change. He says in the book of Hebrews chapter number 13 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That means that truth, the truth that was uh, applicable and true in Moses day, that was in David's day, is the same truth that has not changed in my day. Now, let me tell you what that does to you. It provides a sense of foundation and assuredness about this truth. And when truth does not change, you can place your trust in it. When truth is always changing, there's no confidence in that truth. Like how can people go and talk about something that is obviously wrong, obviously wrong and can be mis um, um, and can be verified to be wrong in just a couple of clicks on your computer. But yet we have no problem in placing hope uh, trust, uh, putting our families, our lives on that which is false. That is what the Bible calls sifting sand. And so if you had to go and talk to somebody about your faith, what would you tell them? The Bible right now, um, as a pastor, I'm, a, I'm always having to do this. Now, let me just kind of put this in here for a second. I am never advising, nor have I ever said, nor will I ever say that you need to debate over the word of God. Because when you argue with fools, you become the fool that you're arguing with. And so don't ever argue the Bible. So don't throw scriptures back and forth with anybody uh, because you are accomplishing nothing. What I am simply saying here is that as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians that have placed our entire lives, our well-being, and our future eternity on the pages of Scripture, 
we should know what we believe and we should know what we believe concretely. There should be absolutely no doubt in any of our minds that the Bible is what it says that it is. And so how do we do this? I want to give you a couple of things that I've been using for uh, quite a number of years and expressing my faith and going out to evangelize. Uh, when we're witnessing the people, when we're doing mission trips and we're doing all of these other things, and we'll get into that in, uh, in, in a couple of more minutes. But what do we do to verify our faith? How do we do that? Uh, how do we cross the T's and dot the I's? If we're honest, there is always a temptation for Christians to retreat into a defensive apologetic uh, crouch. And I say apologetic, and I'll explain that in just a little bit. But I'm saying most of the time, Christians, when pressed about their faith and don't have the answers to those questions that they are presented with, uh, retreat into a defensive mode. And they'll retreat in that defensive mode by either sidestepping the question entirely or engaging in a conversation with the goal of convincing the unbeliever that it's just not right to believe the Bible, but it's okay to believe the Bible. So they'll say stuff like this. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. And at the end of the day, that's true. But I believe that most Christians give that as they are pressed into a corner because they are given questions that they don't know how to answer. They don't know how to answer the question about Jesus. They don't know how to answer the question about the resurrection. They don't know how to answer those kind of questions. And so here's what they do. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. But here's the thing. As Christians, we're not in the business of simply playing the defense for our crazy beliefs, just getting people to leave us alone so that we can get on with practicing our religion in the privacy of our own homes. Quite to the contrary, we're actually in the business and on the mission of declaring to a sinful and rebellious world that the king has offered mercy and forgiveness through his own life, death and resurrection from the grave. As I teach and preach, my job is not to impart information. My job is to persuade. But in order to persuade people, I must first be persuaded myself. And if I don't know what I believe, if I'm not convinced with what I believe, it is going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for me to convince other people about what I believe. And make no mistake about it, everybody. Every day of your life, the world is trying to convince you or persuade you of something. That is why we have commercials. Commercials are meant or intended to persuade you to buy a particular product. Television shows, advertisements, all of those things are meant are aimed at changing your belief system. But as Christians, we're not in the business of simply playing the defense to verify or to um, to put into a more palatable way of practicing our crazy beliefs and saying to people, well, you ain't got to believe it. That's just what you believe. I believe what I believe. So you can't quit before the game starts. In other words, don't admit that while most of the world operates in the realm of reason and logic, belief in the Bible is a religious matter that you just got to kind of take on faith. That even though we're living in a world that operates on facts, uh, we say of the Bible, well, you just got to take that by faith. You just got to kind of believe it. Uh, you don't really have to put your hands on it. You don't really have to really know what it is. You just got to kind of believe it. And if that is the if that is your response, when someone asks you about your faith, that's uh, sifting sand. I can tell you that I've heard many times Christians use that when they get pushed into the conversational corner, they come out with the questions hard and fast when they're on the ropes and simply say, I believe what I believe. And that's wonderful. But if you're honest, you know that that doesn't hold water. 
In 1 Peter 3 and 15, Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, that, phrase, that phrase doesn't mean be defensive. Um, it does not mean be defensive. It means to make a case. Uh, that is to give reasons for your faith, including your belief in the Bible that will press back on the person questioning you. In other words, Peter is telling us to be ready to make a case to the world, not just what is all right for us to believe in the Bible, but why they should believe in the Bible. And we are to make a compelling case, not just based on personal emotions, but on intellectual convictions about the, the, the validity of the word of God. Can I tell you that there are many people throughout the channels of history that have tried to uh, disprove the word of God and all have been proven wrong? Many people try to take this book because it is a powerful book written to us by uh, God himself, used 40 writers inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us his thoughts and his ways towards man. And it means not relegating your belief in the Bible to merely being religious, but rather making a case based on reason, evidence and logic that will have the potential to unsettle the even most hardened skeptic. So how do we do this? How do we do this? One of the things that I love about Jesus is when he was um, in interactions with those of the religious world, the, the astute of the religious world, uh, he would often confound them with, their, with, with his wisdom. As a matter of fact, you'll see this in Matthew chapter number seven and eight, when the people said of Jesus is that he spoke like one who had authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. It is because he not only had a personal conviction, a personal conviction of the life that he had with God or with his father, but he had an intellectual conviction. He knew what he believed and why he believed it. And he was able to clearly articulate those reasons. And so secondly, I want to tell you that you need to get behind your pre, uh, presuppositions. Let's face it, that most of the people around us don't believe the bedrock truths that we Christians hold to be the most precious and most foundational to our lives. They do not believe in God. They do not believe Jesus was the son of God. They do not believe that he was resurrected from the, uh, the dead. They do not believe that the Bible is the word of God or even that there's any special way or any really spiritual thing about the world as a whole. What that means is if your case for the truth of the Bible begins on those premises, you're going to have a hard time convincing a skeptical friend to accept it. Now, that's not only what you say, but that's also in what you do. Ultimately, we believe that the Bible, uh, because Jesus believed the Bible, we believe that Jesus, because he rose from the dead, we also believe that Jesus did exactly what he said that he did. And it is a powerful, powerful statement when you understand the truths of the word of God. Here's what the Bible says, that we are to study to show ourselves approved a worker that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so how do we get these particular truths into our heart? Well, we have to be able to look at what we want to know about the Bible. And the Bible is this book that has given us mass uh, promises that it would be well worth our time to investigate. Now, there are certain truths in the Bible that we have to look at. Now, we, only not, we not only have the copies of the original manuscripts 
uh, copies, and I, I do denote copies, but we also have things like the Silver Scrolls, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have the Septuagint, we have the Vulgate, uh, we have the Samaritan Pentateuch, we have the Targum, and we have Coptic um, um, copies of these manuscripts. And what these particular manuscripts do, now I was in Israel, I've been to Israel three times, and as you're going to Mount Masada, which is where King Herod put his fortress, um, as you're going to Mount Masada, about 15 miles before Mount Masada of the Qumran Caves. And the Qumran Caves are where we discovered the book of Isaiah. Uh, early in the 19th century, there was a young man that was uh, playing in these caves and he was tossing pebbles in these particular rock openings. And as he tossed a rock into these particular rock openings, he heard something crash or something break. As he went in to go investigate what it was that broke, he found these jars um, that were lined up against the walls of the cave. He called for his father, and long story short, this particular discovery of the Qumran Caves was the book of Isaiah in 95% of its uh, documented, um, the copy of the book of Isaiah. This is actually on uh, display um, in the uh, Israeli museum, uh, museum in Jerusalem. And as they laid out the the, the uh, Qumran scrolls is what they're called, as they laid it right next to the book of Isaiah, the Bible that we still read right now in 1611, this Bible, as they laid out those copies of the book of Isaiah, that was a 99.5% accuracy. And the only discrepancies in the Bible had nothing to do with meaning. It was a capital letter here or a comma there or a semicolon now. It, it, none of the discrepancies of the 0.5% of the Qumran scrolls in the book of Isaiah was significant enough to change the meaning of the book of Isaiah. I always bring that up to, to, to skeptics because here's, what I, I, here's why I say that. It's because the Bible has been preserved miraculously, and when I say miraculously, I mean by the hand of God, so that the word of God is the word of God. And so how do you know these things if you do not dive into them to study to show yourself approved? So instead of getting behind and doing the knee-jerk reactions when someone, you know, puts you into a corner and not knowing what the response should be, here's what I recommend. Here's what I encourage. Here's what I um, tell people who love the Lord. Know why you love the Lord. Um, know, know your faith, everybody. Know your faith. Know your faith. Um, Jesus is not this arbitrary man who kind of walked the earth, kind of skipping along the yellow brick road and healing people as he kind of went about his day. He was a very real person. And we believe that Jesus, this is called the hypostatic union, is all man and all God. The Old Testament says that God, the father, looked to and fro looking for someone to show himself strong through. So he looked to Noah, but he couldn't do it through Noah because Noah was a drunk. He looked through David. David couldn't do it because David was an adulterer. So he looked to and fro to find a human vessel to show himself strong through because he didn't want Genesis chapter number three to be the end of the story. When Genesis chapter number three happened and sin entered into the world, God wanted to restore the relationship that he genuinely had with man. But he had to do that through a sinless human vessel. Since humans were the one to break the covenant of God, it had to be a human sacrifice or a human vessel to reconcile man back unto himself. And so God looked to and fro throughout the Old Testament to find somebody as a human vessel to show his power through. 
And because there was no one to be found, because all were with sin, he couldn't find anybody. And now we find ourselves in the season that we're in now. Uh, there was a man, the Bible says in the book of Luke, that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born. In the exact time that Jesus was to be birthed into this world, he came through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, he had to come through the womb of the Virgin Mary. She had to be a virgin, lest he would have the seed of his father, Joseph. If Mary and Joseph would have come together and Jesus would have been birthed into the world, he would have been birthed into the world through his father's seed, thus bringing about the sin of the father. Therefore, he had to come through a virgin womb. We call it the immaculate conception. And that is with the Virgin Mary. Jesus came through the virgin womb of Mary. It has never happened before and it will never happen again. It is a one time event in history that was given for the salvation of the world. And so here it is, Jesus coming through the womb of the Virgin Mary because he had to be born sinless. Now, this was the plan of God. The plan of God announces the birth of Jesus. We don't hear anything else about Jesus until he's 12 years old when Mary and, and Joseph were going into the temple and then they left to go back home. They looked in the caravan. Jesus was not there. And when they went back to go and find Jesus, this 12 year old boy, they find him ministering in the temple, teaching the scribes and the Pharisees. So we are birthed into the world through the Virgin Mary. We find the next instance of Jesus. He's 12 years old. And then there is an 18 year gap from the time he's 12 years old until the time he hits right around about 29 or 30. And so the Bible does not fill in from zero to 11 or from 12 until 30, because those years, according to God's own sovereignty, according to God's own will, were not important to the redemptive plan of man. So Jesus' life picks back up in a very profound way when he's about 30 years old. And you'll see him walking um, down the sea line and he encounters uh, Peter and Andrew. And at this particular time is when the plan and the redemptive plan of God begins to be put in motion. He calls his first disciples to join him in evangelizing the world, to bringing forth the plan of salvation that God had in the world. Now, how's this? The, the picture that we have today of Jesus Christ is based on a um, Catholic version of Christ. OK, please hear what I'm saying here. Jesus was a brown skinned Palestinian Jew. If you go to the Sixteen Chapel in uh, Rome and you look up at the ceiling, you'll see this magnificent painting of Jesus as a uh, man with blue eyes and blonde hair. And that is the picture of Christ that has been perpetrated throughout the world for eons upon eons. But as I went to the Bethlehem Church in uh, Jerusalem in 2018, where the actual church is built over the actual manger that Jesus was born in, as you walk into this particular church, every portrait of Jesus in that particular church is black. Every single portrait of Jesus in the Bethlehem Church that is built over the actual manger where supposedly Jesus was born, born at is a picture of a black man. The picture of his disciples are also black. Okay, so please hear what I'm saying here. Jesus was not born in a manger. He was not born in a manger. In the time of Jesus, uh, wood would have been far too expensive for Joseph and Mary to have afforded and to have built a manger out of wood for their cattle and their sheep or, or anybody in that particular region. They could not have afforded the wood that it would have taken in order to build a manger. 
You'll find in the book of Sol- Song of Solomon, he talks about the Lebanon, the Lebanon, uh, the cedars of Lebanon. Wood was an imported structure into Jerusalem at Jesus' day. Jesus was more than likely, a 90% uh, likelihood, that Jesus was born in a cave. Now, I want you to hear this. Most of the stuff that we hear about Jesus and see about Jesus, Jesus in the manger, all of these particular things are based on a Roman Catholic ideology of who Jesus Christ is. And so when you understand that the, the, the picture that we see is not the person that the Bible depicts, you begin to start doing additional research to understand why you believe what you believe. And so now here it is, Jesus coming through the Virgin Mary. We find him again at the age of 12. The next time we find him is at the age of 30. He's now calling his disciples to walk with him. And then for three years, he pours himself into these 12 men. He pours himself deliberately into these 12 men that he's called to be disciples and walk along with him in the 12 years beginning the redemptive plan of God. He pours his life into him. He pours his life into 12 men that are verifiable throughout the channels of history. 12 men that we can spot and we can pinpoint existed in the channels of history. Not some figment of his imagination, not some people that, you know, somebody uh, uh, imagined in the, in, the, in the recesses of their own mind. These are 12 men that he poured himself into for three years. We can identify them. And then in the third year of his walking on earth, he begins the final stages of the redemptive plan. Now his life is getting ready to come to an end. For three years, he pours himself into these three men. Now, there are facts that we need to know. The basics are wonderful to know, but the basics are not everything. Sometimes the issues involved in making the case for the Bible can appear to be so overwhelming that it seems like you'll never be able to get your head around them. But in reality, it is that you don't have to know everything that fills the thousands of pages that have been written about the truth of the Bible in order to make a good, confident case of your own. So I often share this to the people um, that, that God has allowed me to minister to. I'm not saying that you have to know every single book of the Bible. I'm not saying that you have to memorize every single scripture of all 66 books. I'm not saying that you have to do that. I'm not saying that you have to know where every book of the Bible is. If you still need to go to the table of contents to find where a book of the Bible is, by all means, turn to the front of the book and find out where it is. What I am saying is that the books that you do know, have a working knowledge about your faith and how it operates and what that is doing in your own personal life. And it's got to be more than just a personal heart tug of personal conviction. It's got to be based on some evidence. I want you to think about it this way. In every other part of your life, you operate with evidence. Uh, Many people, uh, you may be right now sitting down watching this podcast or riding in your car, listening to this podcast, Uh, wherever you are, you're doing what you're doing right now based on evidences and assurances. So you're sitting down in a chair right now, or you're sitting in your car right now because you previously sat down in that chair or you previously rode in that car and that particular car or chair, wherever you may be right now, proved itself to be true. That's why you did it again. So life is based on a series of evidences and truths that we all do. We all live life based on evidences and truths. 
But when it comes to the Bible, we take those evidences and truths and throw them out the window and operate in this very esoteric 30,000 foot view of who God is. And so we operate with the hairs on our arms and the emotions. And those things are wonderful because when God's presence comes down, many of those things are manifested in our lives. However, we have to have a working knowledge about why we are saved. And so the key to learning how to understand the Bible and then to articulate it is to understand some very core concepts of the Bible, understanding the issue of sin, understanding what sin did with God and how man has been separated from God because of sin, because of sin. Man has been separated from God. As a matter of fact, uh, the book of Isaiah says that our sins have separated us from God. And that happens when we sin against him. And so because there's this great chasm that exists between man and God, there has to be a bridge to that chasm. There has to be somebody, not something. There has to be somebody, not something that is able to bridge sinful man with a holy God. Now, here's one of the things about the Bible that makes it unique. The Bible is the only religious book that does not assert personal effort in order to gain God's favor. Every other religious book asserts personal responsibility, personal good in order to obtain favor from God. Every other religious book says you have to do this in order to obtain favor from God. The Bible is the only religious book. And I put that in air quotes. The only religious book that does not assert personal goodness or personal righteousness in order to obtain favor from God. The Bible does not assert that. As a matter of fact, the Bible asserts quite the opposite. It says that there is none good, no, not one. We can never do enough good works on this side of heaven to gain God's favor. And God knows that. Therefore, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the perfect sacrifice on behalf of the world so that man might be reconciled back unto him. So the reason why Jesus had to be sinless is because we as people are sinful. And that's why the book of second, second Corinthians chapter number five says that he that knew no sin became sin for our benefit. And so the Bible is the only religious book that says there's no way that you can be personally good enough to get right with God. You have to have a mediator. I'm often reminding, you know, my daughter's, uh, my daughter, Markayla, um, is in school to be a lawyer. And we often have these discussions. Um, you know, the old saying is that uh, a person that represents himself in court has a fool for a client. Right. So when somebody goes to court and he says uh, and the judge says, where's your legal representation? And, uh, and the defendant says, I'm my legal representation. And the judge says, are you sure you want to do that? Right. Because if anybody that represents himself in court has a fool for a client, I want you to think about this in a very real way. If, the, if we are able to attain favor with God, there's no need for Jesus. Right. And so when when sinful man has sinned against God, God says that there is no way there's nothing that you can do to fill that gap that exists between you and me. Only I can fill that gap. And I have to do it a certain way. And that is by and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a real person. 
unlike what the Mormons say, um, you're not going to be a God when you get to heaven. Uh, unlike what the Muslims say, peace be unto him, that he was a prophet before Muhammad. Uh, unlike what Harry Krishna says, unlike what Buddhism says, that he was a good teacher. Jesus Christ was not only all of those things. He was not only a good teacher, a prophet. He was the son of God. One of the things that draws the clear line in the sand for Christianity and what makes Christianity a volatile religion is that Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We believe that according to Philippians chapter two, verses five and 11. Where it says, let this mind being you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider a robbery to be made equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and those under the earth, that Jesus Christ is, the, is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we believe that Jesus is all God and all man. It's called this is a $50 word in, in, in theological terms called the hypostatic union, all God, all man. And it makes it a very volatile subject to talk about Jesus being God. And the skepticism around that is massive. All you have to simply do is a simple Google search and see all the questions that will be posed about that one statement. But it is a foundational belief that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter one, verse one, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so we believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so while as we're looking at this Christmas season and as we're looking at 2020 that is coming and going, we're looking at being on the brink of 2021 and looking about how much religiosity affects the lives of people. Um, one of the greatest resources that we have in determining what the Bible says is true is the Bible itself. As I teach classes about this particular subject, I would tell uh, our students that you have to allow the Bible to confirm itself. Uh, so if the Bible contradicts itself, then there is a, a contradiction that must be dealt with. But in all of the 66 pages, of, in all of the 66 books of the scriptures, uh, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation does not override itself. It does not overlap. It does not contradict itself. You got to remember, it's 40 different writers on different continents doing different time periods in history, all write in accordance so that all of their pieces of writing fit perfectly together. It is an amazing, it is an amazing assembly of information. Lastly, I want to tell you this. Um, as you look at the Bible, uh, the core of the Christian faith rests on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, everybody, we have nothing. I want to give you a little thing here. Um, the Bible never tells us to celebrate Jesus' birth. It never tells us that. The Bible tells us to celebrate his death. I can't tell you, as I can almost get to the month, within a couple of months, and tell you when Jesus was, when he got crucified on the cross, scholars and historians, uh, biblical scholars can narrow the, that time down to maybe two to three months within that time frame. 
It is very difficult for me to give you even a two to three month, four month, five month range of when Jesus Christ was born. So the Bible never tells us to celebrate the birth of Christ, but it tells us repeatedly to celebrate the death of Christ, the death on Calvary, the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the crux of the Christian faith. Without it, we have nothing. Without it, Jesus is just like Muhammad. Without it, Jesus is just like Buddha. Without it, Jesus is just like any other religious figure that have come and gone throughout all the ages. But the Bible is replete in proving the existence and the affirmation that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified on Calvary's cross, rose three days later. So in the end, the truth of the Bible rests on the identity and the authority of Christ. And Jesus' identity and authority rests on the fact that he rose from the dead. And ultimately, that, must, that is why we must trust the Bible, because Jesus, the resurrected one, defined it, believed it, and authorized it. So while you're talking about skeptics, that is crucial to this point to remember, that while we can talk about any other things and all other things, the thing that is most important to our faith is the resurrection from the dead. Now, walking down the Via Della Rosa, uh, which now in Jerusalem, strangely enough, as you come out of... Um, the um, as you're going through the Western Wall, you'll go through Hezekiah's tunnel and then you'll come out on the other side of the Via Della Rosa. Now, the Via Della Rosa doesn't look like it does in 2020. Right now, the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem is surrounded by markets um, and it is surrounded. I mean, it is it is a ton of markets on the left and to the right. So as soon as you come out of the church, as soon as you come out of the church and you make a left to walk down the Via Della Rosa, you are inundated by people that are selling all kinds of things. Uh, crosses, American flags, Israeli flags, scarves, and all of that stuff. So the Via Della Rosa right now in 2020 is a marketplace. But as you walk down the Via Della Rosa, it is a very, very uh, narrow road, probably about nine to 10 feet wide. And along the Via Della Rosa, the Catholic Church have put all of these different points where Jesus walked down the Via Della Rosa. When he came in and Mary came and, and, and stood by his side, when Veronica, the one who came and wiped his face uh, with the scarf, when Simon uh, interacted with him. So down the Via Della Rosa, they have all these points where Jesus interacted with these common people. And then you go up to Cal uh, Golgotha. Well, the uh, Valley of the Skulls, where the Hill of the Skull is, where ultimately Calvary is. Now, at Calvary, it's very interesting. When you, in, in Jerusalem right now, there are one of two places where uh, we believe historically um, where Jesus could have been crucified and where the empty tomb was. One of two places, and they're probably about a mile from each other. Um, we visited both of those places and both of those places have legitimate arguments about why one could be one and the other one could be one. Um, but in both of those particular uh, places, you'll find this home dot stone cave. And, and why is that important? Because we know that Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, only in Jesus day did rich people have tombs. Most people were buried in sepulchers outside of the city walls. 
outside of the city of Jerusalem. Most people who died were buried in sepulchers outside of the city walls. As a matter of fact, when you go to the Mount of Olives and you're able to see the Golden Dome, if you Google Jerusalem and you see the Golden Dome, that's the picture that everybody sees. It's that big Golden Dome. It's called the Dome on the Rock. But that particular view is from the Mount of Olives or on the heel of the Mount of Olives. Whereas you're standing on the Mount of Olives, as you look over, there is this mass graveyard. And this mass graveyard is filled with tombs. It's filled with sepulchers right there on the outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now, remember this, everybody, the city of Jerusalem, what it looks like in 2020 was not what it looked like in Jesus day. So there have been many particular things that have been added to Jerusalem of 2020 than what it looked like in Jesus day. And so as you're looking at the Mount of Olives, you see all of these sepulchers at the bottom. And so when we find that Jesus was buried in a tomb, a tomb were only for those who had money enough in order to have workers hone out of a stone mountain, a burial place for him and his family. Now, we know that this particular tomb was Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man. Jesus was not buried like the common people who would be buried outside of the city walls in a sepulcher. He was buried in a tomb that would have a stone cast over the entrance. This is very, very important. The reason why he was not buried on the outside where the commoners were is because he needed something to be rolled away and could be easily accessible by those who would come later. We know that to be Mary and the women. And so here Jesus is being buried inside of a tomb with a stone rolled over the entranceway. Now, to this day, that stone that is rolled over the entranceway cannot be found. Uh, and, and the guy that was telling us this made a phenomenal point. He said, knowing people the way that we do and how we worship trinkets and how we worship things, people would have worshiped the stone rather than the stone being rolled away. And God knows that. And so God took it away. But inside of this particular tomb, you have this resting place for the dead body to be laid. And so when they're coming to anoint uh, the body of Christ, and another word for anointed, they were coming to embalm him. When they came, they found that the stone was rolled away. Now, again, because we say it in like in such story like details, that's what it kind of sounds like. But they came to anoint the body of the Lord. As they came to the tomb, they found that the stone was rolled away. Now, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that Mary and the women could get in. Jesus didn't need to roll away the stone in order to come out of the tomb. He resurrected with all power in his hand. He resurrected and reassumed the, the powers that he had, the powers that were rightfully his as he came into human form and came through the birth canal of Mary. He reassumed those powers, that authority, that divinity when he resurrected from the dead. So he didn't need to roll the stone away in order to get out. He rolled the stone away for you and me. Because if Mary and the rest would have encountered that stone, these women could have in no way, shape or form rolled that big 2000 pound stone away from the tomb. And so they walk in and they see that he's gone. They see the linens perfectly folded on the place where Jesus was supposed to be. The resurrection is the most documented event in history. 
not only through Christendom, not only through the Christian faith, but in pagan resources, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most documented event in human history. You can find it in the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. You will find this in Coptic writings. You will find this. Matter of fact, if you go to Ethiopia, which is one of two of the only countries in Africa that was not colonized, you will find that Ethiopia has very, very detailed events about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll find them in Coptic. You'll find them in Syriac. You'll find them in Slavic. You'll find them in all of these particular manuscripts that document the resurrection of Christ, not from a Christian worldview, but from an historical worldview. They document it by history. And so the resurrection from the dead is the most important part to our Christian faith. I want to encourage you, beloved, about this. Jesus is who he says that he is. As Second Peter 3 and 15 says, we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. We got to know what we believe, know why we believe it, and to be able to clearly articulate why we believe. But in order to do that, that means that you must study to show yourself approved. Don't hang your head low uh, when people are talking about the Bible. You don't have to shrink into a corner because you believe something that other people don't. Know what you believe and know it from the confines of your heart so that you can discuss the magnificent truths that the Bible asserts. God is a good God, and God says, um, through the person of Jesus Christ, I sent my son into the world to live a perfect life, which he did for 33 years, down the cross of Calvary, be buried in a tomb, resurrected on the third day, ascend to heaven 50 days later, and then sit at my right hand and make intercession for those who would believe on his name. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In this season where we are celebrating the life of Christ, we celebrate the life of Christ. But it is the death of Christ that gives us access into the kingdom of God. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ that grants us the ability to have that chasm closed between sinful man and a holy God. So why do you believe the Bible? I pray that you believe the Bible from a personal aspect because of what God has personally done in your own life, but also that you believe the Bible, that you believe the Bible from an intellectual perspective. And so this is part one of part two. Uh, we're going to talk about something here on next week where we'll build on this case um, because everybody, the Bible, uh, the truths of Scripture, I believe, is what will solidify a person in their faith so that they will grow in the grace and the knowledge of God and that they will be more productive in what God has called for them to do. So thank you for joining us here on the set of Studio B, man. I appreciate you being here so, so very much. We do not take your presence for granted. Thank you for joining us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, wherever you're watching, like, follow, subscribe, comment, and then also make sure that wherever you access your podcast app, make sure that you search for Studio B, give us a subscribe, and also give us a couple of uh, um, comments and give us some, um, some recommendations. We would love those five stars and some great comments that you talk about with this podcast. So everybody, until we see you next week, be blessed.
the soul. 